The sermon text is John 18, verses 1 through 11, and you can find it on page 580 in the paper Bibles. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Okay, well you may have noticed that we skipped ahead a little bit. Uh, we are now in John chapter 18 and we're going to head back to John chapter 10 after we get through Easter. But uh, you may have noticed kind of a more somber tone to our music and stuff this week. We are in Lent and we're in the, the weeks ahead of uh, the Easter celebration. And so as Easter approaches, we want to take some time to study the passion narrative, the story of what happened in the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. And so this, this morning, we're looking at John 18, which is the account of Jesus' arrest and his betrayal. You may have noticed, as Manny read it, that there's a, a big theme of control here, that Jesus is obviously very much in control at every moment of this scene. Even when everything seems to be falling apart, it's obvious you know, who's... who's ordering things. And one pastor that I really respect when he was explaining this passage, and you know, he's right most of the time, um, he was saying that that's kind of the main point. He, he put it that Jesus is in control even during the Gethsemanes of our life. And there is some truth there. God is certainly in control even when things seem to be going poorly, but that's not really the point. That can't be the point of this passage because this book we have learned is not about us when we see what Gethsemane is really about when we look at this this morning and figure out what's happening here in this garden you start to realize there are no Gethsemanes of our life there is only one Gethsemane and it's right here so we need to understand what this is about there is a different point to this story and John tells us one of the things I love about John is he tells us. He tells us what the point is. It's a couple pages from here. We've, we've mentioned it before. He tells us that the point of this book, the point of these stories, is this. These things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's in John chapter 20. That's what he says all these stories are about. So John tells us this story. This story of Jesus being arrested 
so that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that we'll find life in his name. And as we look at this this morning, I think what we're going to see is uh, this is a story ultimately about our Savior. And it addresses one of the big reasons why so many of us don't find life in his name. What you'll see, especially as we look at Peter, is it talks about how we get so caught up in our own plans and our own expectations that we end up looking for the wrong kind of Savior. And we end up missing out on the kind of life he gives. So let's consider three things this morning as we pick this text apart. First, I want us to think about the kind of Savior we want. Looking at this story, what is the kind of Savior we want? And then, let's see the kind of Savior we actually have. And finally, as we compare those two things, I want us to see the type of life he brings. So that's where we're going. The Savior we want, the Savior we have, and the life that he brings. Before we really start talking about the Savior we want, let's just look at this scene for a minute, because it is really dramatic. John goes out of his way to build up the tension that's happening here. We know that, that this takes place under the cover of night. We see the description here that as they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane, they see lanterns and torches, this crowd of people coming towards them. Can you imagine what it might have been like to be there, standing there that night and seeing the torches off in the distance as they're slowly approaching? To hear the soldiers' footsteps getting closer and closer. And Jesus, the whole time, there's no question for him what this means. He knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead. When those troops show up, John even tells us, he says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Don't miss that part. That's important. Jesus knows what's going on and he is resolute. He's the one who's giving the orders. He's the one who's telling them how it is. This is what Jesus came for. And he knows it. On the other hand, you have Peter. The other character that shows up in this account is Peter. And I love Peter. Peter is a surrogate in many ways for us. Whenever he shows up in the Gospels, not just John, but but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whenever he shows up, there's a lot for us to, a lot of ways where we can see ourselves there. And first of all, it's because we know Peter is, is dearly loved by Jesus. Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends, right? He's in the inner circle. And he's the guy who really gets it sometimes. Peter seems to be on track with Jesus so much more than some of the other guys. You know, remember the story of Jesus walking on water. Peter's the one who goes out to him in faith. Or even a, a few weeks ago, we read that story where the crowds who had been fed during the feeding of the 5,000, they turn away from Jesus. And Peter stands in front of with the other disciples and he says, we're not going to go anywhere. Who else are we going to go to? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. He says, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter really gets it sometimes. (laughs) But then there's those other times, right? There are so many times where Peter just kind of he just kind of seems like a moron sometimes, right? He, he, he does things that, that seem unbelievable. And they're almost always in situations like this one. They're almost always in situations where Jesus is dealing with his coming death. 
And so 2,000 years removed, looking back at the story, knowing how it ends and where it's going, it's easy to be critical of Peter here, who pulls out his sword and cuts off one of these guys' ears, right? You think, Jesus was all about turning to the cheek. What were you thinking? Of course he wasn't going to go for this. Of course that wasn't a great idea. But I think this is bigger than just that. I think the problem here is bigger than just a, a misunderstanding. It's not just that Peter wasn't following what Jesus had to say about conflict. This is about an ideology. This is about expectations. The real conflict here is about the kind of Savior that Peter was looking for. The kind of plans that Peter had already made. What were those plans? You, probably, you may know. The expectation that's built up in the Old Testament of the Messiah is that this Messiah is going to be a big conquering king. That he's going to come in and he's going to kick the door down on Rome and he's going to lay everything low and he's going to set things straight and he's going to set up the throne of David again and he's going to reign forever in peace. Peter, when Jesus showed up, when Peter starts to figure out Jesus might just be this Messiah, he thinks, well, this signals the arrival of onward and upward for the rest of his life, right? Getting to be in the inside circle with Jesus means things are going to go really well for him, that all of his dreams are, are going to come true. Some people call this type of thinking a theology of glory. That's what Peter had. He had a theology of glory. And the truth is, so do we. We also have a theology of glory. Eugene Peterson is a, a Bible scholar. He translated the message version of the Bible. Um, really knows scripture well. And he was interviewed a few years back. And he gave this quote. He said that American culture is probably the least Christian culture that we've ever had. Because it is so materialistic and full of lies. He says, people have been treated as consumers for so long that they just don't know any other way to live. Now, there may be some hyperbole there, right? Maybe this isn't the least Christian culture in all of history, but I think the point is the same. I think the point is a really good one. What, what do Americans expect out of life? I think we expect more. We expect at some point to be able to get what we want. We want more happiness. We want more money. We want more stability, more fame, more recognition, more things. We want more. We just want more all the time. And, you know, I'm constantly hearing from people in this community, sometimes from people even in the congregation, you know, I'm meeting with people and, and hearing them express that, uh, that they feel like a failure, <laughs> that, they, that they're judging their life based on these outrageous examples, and they feel stuck. You know, one guy, I was asking him, you know, what, what would happiness be for you? Like, what, what is the success you're looking for? And he says, well, you know, Jay-Z seems pretty good, <laughs> right? I, I talked to another woman, and she said, you know, I just want to be in, in a long-term, committed, loving relationship, like Brad and Angelina have, <laughs> right? Now, now, those examples, they might seem silly, right? Those things sound a little ridiculous if you feel like you know better than that. 
But I think it's a, a regular occurrence on a smaller level in, in all of our lives. I'm, all, I'm frequently talking to people who seem like they're on the verge of despair because life hasn't panned out the way they thought it would. Life hasn't given them all they expected. There's someone outshining them at work or in school or, or just in life. They haven't reached the dreams that they set for themselves. And folks, this isn't just other people, right? This is all of us. This is how we all feel. This is in the air that we breathe. Just ask yourself. Think about it for a minute. Are you content? What is it going to take to make you content? What's missing? What do you need? I want you to imagine for a second, whatever answer you just came up with, what if God himself told you you're never going to have that? How would you feel? Could you accept it? Because that is essentially what is happening here in this story. That is what Jesus says to Peter when he says, put away your sword. He says, you're never going to get what you want. I'm not taking down these guys. I'm not that kind of savior. John Calvin, the great philosopher and theologian, he takes it even a step further. He says, in the person of Peter, Christ condemns everything that men dare to attempt in their own fancy. He says, nothing's more common than to defend under the cloak of zeal everything we do as if it were no, of no importance whether God approved or not. In other words, he says, we have this terrible habit of assuming that our plans are the same as God's plans. Especially if we feel really strongly about those ideas. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that's devastating to me. That, that just is too close to home. It's basically a thought we see all over Scripture, right? It comes up in Proverbs. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We're okay with that idea sometimes, I guess. I'm okay with that idea when it comes to little things, right? If I come home and, and there's Chinese food for dinner instead of pizza, right? I, oh, well, it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, I, I'm, fine. I'm fine with it then. But what about the big things? What about when, when those big plans you have aren't working out? Well, when that happens to me, I know I'm like Peter. I draw the sword. I, I try to do whatever I can to force it through. I try to push my plans ahead. I try to make things happen. You know, I don't, I don't care about the consequences. I don't care about the casualties. But the message that Jesus gives Peter is a message that is is so countercultural today. It's so in our face that it's almost hard to say it. Jesus says following him requires surrendering our plans to his plans. If onward and upward is what we want, he's not that kind of savior. He's not here to, to sign off on your plan for a wonderful life. He didn't come to bring us glory. John tells us he came to bring us life. So that might sound depressing. 
that might sound like kind of a bummer at first, that Jesus is not the kind of Savior we want. But, but let me tell you about this other thing. The second point I want to talk about is the kind of Savior we actually have. Because here's where the good news comes in. Let's look back at our passage. When Jesus starts to rebuke Peter, when he tells him, put away your sword, put your sword into its sheath, he asks him a very specific question follow-up. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? If you've ever had a chance to read the Old Testament, which if you haven't, I invite you to join us. We're reading a one-year Bible right now. We're, we just finished Leviticus, so it's smooth sailing from here. <laughs> uh, there's some copies of that out back. But if you've ever had a chance to read the Old Testament, uh, you might understand what Peter understood here. This idea of the cup. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup is a symbol that is used frequently in the Old Testament. You find it all over the place. We read it in our Old Testament reading this morning, you might have heard it. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it all the wicked, and all the wicked on the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or in Jeremiah 25, it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he said to me, Take from my hand this cup, the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup that Jesus is talking about is the cup of wrath. It's the cup of the wrath and judgment of God. And you see something very important when you look at the way he phrases that. Notice Jesus doesn't say, shall I not drink my cup? He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The reason why Jesus can't be that kind of Savior that Peter wants is because he has a more important purpose. He has come to drink a cup that doesn't belong to him. He has come to absorb the wrath that he hasn't earned. So here's Peter looking for a Savior who's going to conquer his enemies. But what Peter didn't get was there is a much bigger enemy, a much more terrifying enemy that needed to be faced. And it's one that not just he had to face, but all of us who have ever existed have to face. The wrath of God. We all have to face the wrath of God. And you hear that and you might think, well, I, don't, I, I don't like the way that sounds. I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I'm not sure how I feel about we all have to face the wrath of God. I mean, isn't God supposed to be loving? How could he do something like that? Well, yeah, you're right. God is loving. I, I want to say that very, as clearly as I possibly can. In fact, God himself, when he declares himself to Moses, that's the first thing he says. He says, if you remember this story, God appears to Moses and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. God is a God of love. But then he follows that by saying, But who will by no means clear the guilty? 
When you hear that, God is a God of love who will by no means clear the guilty, we wonder how can those things go together? How do those sentences, how does that sentence fit together? But when you think about it for more than a minute or two, you realize those things have to go together. A God of love has to be a God of justice. In the past couple of years, we have seen in this country over and over and over and over again guilty people who never come to justice. I was listening to uh, this podcast called Pass the Mic. Has anybody listened to this before? It's, it's from the Reformed African American Network. It's really great. You should check it out if you haven't. They kind of talk about different issues, theological issues, news issues. And it was the beginning of this year, and they picked up with the subject of Tamir Rice. And you probably all know the story of this 12-year-old boy who was shot by the police playing with a toy gun on the playground. But the reason they were bringing it up this year was talking about how it's kind of blown past. How that story was big in the news, and, and now we've all kind of moved on. But can you imagine what it would be like to be that boy's mom today? You know, as the world has moved on from her problems. And yet, no one has had to answer the questions for what happened to her son. She never got justice. And the truth is, she probably won't. Does a God of love say, I'm fine with that. That's just the way things go. No, of course not. A God of love doesn't say, I'm fine with that. A God of love doesn't say, I'm fine with injustice. I'm fine with abuse. I'm fine with genocide. He says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But here's the thing. A, a truly holy God doesn't just say that about certain sins. He says it about all sin. God hates our sin. Because it has broken his creation. It has separated us from him. It has distorted his image in this world. And it has led to a brokenness that penetrates every single institution and every human heart. And that's why the cup is full. That's why the cup of God's wrath is full. We've poured it for ourselves. Someone has to drink it. A loving God can't let the guilty go unpunished. And so here we come to the big difference between the kind of Savior we want and the Savior we really need. I mean, just look at this story. The supremacy of Jesus. It, it leaps off the page. Every single line, it jumps out, right? Jesus is arrested, but when he's arrested... Doesn't it just remind you of, I don't know, it reminds me of the way I play basketball with my five-year-old son, right? Like, he's going to score all the points, he's going to win the game, but I know at any second, if I want to swat that ball, you know, I'll, I'll, I can drive it through the wall, it's coming so slow. <laughs> from the moment these armies show up, from the moment they arrive, Jesus is, is in charge, He's the guy asking all the questions. When they say, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am he, they fall down. 
And that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it looks like. That is a, a, a glimpse. It's a, it's a moment where Jesus, just for a second, shows them who he is. The Greek, it's even using that same uh, phrasing from a couple weeks ago when he says, before Abraham was, I am. He's letting them know who he is. And if that's not enough, in Luke's account, it tells us after Peter slices that guy's ear off, Jesus heals it back. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control and he is going willingly to drink our cup. Because he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can do it. That's what John wants us to see. That's why he's calling attention to this. That's why Jesus is asking this question when he says, Shall I not drink this cup? It's as if when he looks at Peter, he's he's looking at all of us, and he's saying, who's going to drink this? You or me? Peter, shall I not drink this cup? Who's better suited to do this? Me? The great I am? Or you who who can't even stab somebody right? Right? (laughs) Cutting off half an ear. Who does that? (laughs) What we see, what we get a glimpse of here, Am I going to have to wait this out? (laughs) So right now we start to see what's going to unfold over these next few chapters. We have filled up the cup of God's wrath, and we deserve it. But God's steadfast love, his mercy for all people is just as full. The cross is the place where that love and that justice are going to meet. Jesus, the I am, the perfect, sinless, and powerful Son of God, submits himself to be tied up and bound and led away to his death. On the cross, that cup that we poured, that's prepared for us, God picks up and he hands it to his Son. And he loved us so much that he drank it. He drank it all the way down to the dregs. He didn't leave a little bit for you. He drank it all. It's all gone. He absorbed our sins. That's what the cross is about. He absorbed our sins. Past, present, future. This is the Savior we have. The one who took all of God's wrath for us. And gives us all of God's favor for him. A Savior who calls us not to glory or success. Not to some temporary kingdom in this world. But he calls us into the glorious presence of the living God for all eternity. And all of a sudden, Peter's dreams... Seem really small, don't they? They seem like nothing in comparison. So what does that mean for us? What's the effect of having that kind of Savior in our lives? What kind of life does this produce in us? You know, before we wrap up, I think there are some real practical things we should see in this text. I mean, just basic. If you're a Christian here, there is a, 
a very obvious thing that we need to be humble about our sin. If nothing else, Peter shows us that, that even the most zealous, faithful people who are close to Jesus can be absolutely dead wrong sometimes. We are still blind and unaware of a lot of our sin, and we need to be willing to admit that. We need to be willing to admit that we're the kind of people who need a Savior not just once, but every day. I was just reading the account of a pretty famous pastor who, because of just a lot of things, ended up losing his position, um, committed all kinds of sin against people, but not the big kinds that make the news. And when he was asked to address it, he, he wrote a letter where he said, Mistakes were made. We need to be the kind of people that realize we've made the mistakes and we make them regularly. And sometimes we can't even see it. We need to be the kind of people who can pray that confession we prayed today when we were on our knees where it says, even my repentance needs to be repented of. My tears need to be washed again with the blood of Christ. We need to know that we're the kind of people who have to repent and receive grace daily. That's the first thing. But secondly, what I want us to see here is that there is a huge discrepancy between the kind of Messiah that Peter thought he wanted and the kind of Savior that he really needed. And as every day we get a little bit closer to Easter, I think we all need to pause and and look at this passage and ask, what kind of Savior are we really looking for? Whether you're a Christian here or whether you're just visiting for the first time, what kind of Savior are you really looking for? As we watch throngs of people show up at these Donald Trump rallies where the message is, make America great again. We have this, this narrative in our culture that says what we should expect is greatness and nothing less. Where are you really looking for salvation? What do you think it is that's finally going to make you content? So many of us, we're leading these lives looking for that magical next thing that's going to make everything better, that's going to make our lives full. But what we see here, it's only in Christ that we'll ever find contentment. The kind of life that Jesus produces is one that has to ultimately abandon the theology of glory. The kind of life following Jesus, he calls us to abandon that theology of glory and instead pick up a theology of the cross. A worldview that tells us that the path to fulfillment isn't going to come through fame and honor. It's going to come when we give up our kingdoms and instead live for His. When we realize we're we're not following the guy who's marching on to victory, we're following the guy who shows us that the way to glory is through dishonor in this world. That the way to conquer is through serving. That whoever loses his life, whoever loses her life for my sake, We'll find it. Folks, 
Jesus is the only one who's going to offer the contentment we're looking for. But it's not the kind of contentment that says, well, everything's going to turn out okay by the end. It's, it's a much better kind. It's the kind that says, even if following Jesus is going to cost me my life, even if in the end of this whole thing I'm going to die, Christ is risen. And even though this world might forget us, even though when they look back on our lives, the story might read like defeat, we can put away our sword because he's won the victory. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the promises that you give us in your word. I'm grateful for the assurance you give us in these stories as we watch how powerful and mighty and majestic you are even leading up to your death. And as I see it, I'm reminded of just how miserable I am, how sinful I am, how how slow to believe I am. Father, I pray that you would help us today to lay down the idols of our hearts. I pray, God, that you would would use our, our anxiety and our fears and our pains to expose those places where where we really aren't looking to you as our Savior. Where we've bought into the lies of this world of greatness and glory and onward and upward and where instead we'd come back to you. Father, I pray for anybody in this room who may not know you. And Lord, I just ask that you would, would show them the sweetness of following Christ. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.